0: Welcome back to Catwalk Through Life. In today's episode, we talk about a very important topic. Today's episode is about grieving and coping with death and loss. I'm so honored to be joined by grief specialist, certified death educator, author, and speaker, Dr. Bob Bauer. Dr. Bob offers books, videos, and different resources to help you through this difficult time. And I truly hope this episode can help so many going through loss and needing support through their grieving process. Please enjoy this interview with Dr. Bob Bauer. Thank you so much, Dr. Bob, for coming on the podcast today. It is honestly a true honor to have you on. So starting off, um, correct me if I have any of this wrong. Dr. Bob, you're a grief specialist, a certified death educator, an author, and a speaker. (laughs) Correct. So okay, um, just so uh, listeners know, we're going to have a few interview topics and questions. And then I actually did a post on social media um, asking if anybody had questions for you that are, you know, that's going through uh, grieving themselves or trying to cope with the loss. So we'll answer um, a few of those. And then at the end of the episode, I do a segment called Rundown with Rashi. And it's basically just, you know, you speak about something relevant to right now, something that's happening to you or something that recently inspired you, a story or anything that you want to share basically. Sounds great. Okay. Just if we can start off with the story of why you chose death education to be your career. And it actually reminds me of um, a story that you shared. For many people that don't know, Dr. Bob was my professor for psychology in college so many years ago. <laughs> and um, I remember a story that you shared about your dad um, if you want to either share that story or just how you knew you wanted a career in deaf education.
1: Yeah, that's great. So fe- I always like to do this. February 4th, 1975. So think back, Rashi, what you were doing in 1975. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wasn't born yet. <laughs> yeah,
1: I love pointing to a student and say, so what are you doing back in 75? And their eyes get wide, you know, like <laughs> I have not even thought of. So so here I was, I was teaching uh, classes, and I was getting ready to teach a class out of Fort Lewis, and I got a call from my mother. And my mother was on the phone, flying, screaming, yelling. And I asked the listeners out there to think about how many of you don't like your mother crying and I was in my late 20s at the time and for me it was like what what is going on you're and she's screaming your father's in the hospital and he's dying so what so I jumped in my car drove to Harborview uh hospital and um you know walked in and showed the nurse my driver's license and she said oh go down there to the emergency room and I go there and it's chaos down there I look over there's my mother with my four brothers and sisters my two brothers were in their early 20s and my sisters were like 16 and 14 years old and my and so i go and sit down with my mom what's going on oh he um walked into a bank today he was too sick to go to work and he reached up to get something out of the safety deposit box and he hit the floor and they called 911 and when they got there he had no respiration no pulse and now and she gestures he's he's over there and I look in there he is lying on this gurney looking like he's sleeping it's like oh my goodness so you know we wait there for several hours and they finally put him in a room and then my brothers take my sisters home and then finally at two in the morning they say okay you're your uh, father's um, stabilized. Why don't you guys go home get get some sleep? So I'm standing in the parking lot, and you know, in the middle of the night, with my mother. She still has tears streaming down her face, and she says, "Tomorrow, I want you to go to the funeral home in West Seattle and see about um, setting up a funeral for your father. He was 52 years old. You know, he's one of those workaholics. Never had time to be sick. You know, and here he is, like what? And I figured out later that he'd had a massive stroke, and his whole left side was paralyzed. And, you know, a stroke is when the blood supply of the brain, you know, gets cut off. And um, it, I'm sure a lot of people out there know someone who's had a stroke, but my dad was, you know, as, as strokes go rel- relatively young. So there I am the next day, I taught my classes and uh, I'm heading out to the funeral home. And I'm thinking to myself, back then, I have a master's degree, I'm supposed to know something about human behavior. I don't know anything about dying Death, grief, you know, let alone how to set up a funeral. And so, as it was, my dad was in a coma for a month, came out of the coma, had to learn how to walk all over again. He aged like he looked like an 80 year old and he was 53 because he had gotten his birthday in his coma. And so, the next year, I'm sitting in my office at Seattle Central Community College. Woman knocks at my door and I go, Yeah. And she says, We're, uh, I'm on a committee and we're giving out money. people who want to create a new course and that's how i created the the new death course so they said okay well we like your um death course uh i got by the way they asked me how much i wanted for the grant and i I had never done a grant before and i said i don't know how about like i don't know (laughs) four hundred dollars yeah okay well that was a mistake because i (laughs) uh, you know worked about 800 hours that summer of 1976. So in 77, uh, they said, we're going to offer the course a winter quarter at Seattle Central for the first time, A course, on death, you know. And I said, um, this is exciting. So I go there that first night. Oh, and about a month before that, they said, we're sorry, we accidentally left your course out of the course syllabus. Back then it was paper, you know, so you could. And they said, we're going to pass out a bunch of flyers and, you know, hopefully people will see it. And so I'm thinking, geez, I worked so hard on this course and now people don't even know about it. So January of seventy-seven, I walk into my in my classroom. Nobody's there. I'm thinking, great, you know, I give this course, and then the woman walks in a few seconds later. Oh, your class has been moved down the hall, and I walk in. Forty people are sitting there.
0: Wow. And
1: that set, and I've been teaching that class ever since. People ask me to give lectures, and then over the past, I don't know, thirty plus years, I, I've given more than eight hundred workshops on coping with loss and grief and so on. So that's the whirlwind story of how all this happened, Raji.
0: Well, I mean, it was definitely meant to be because you've taught so many people and I'm sure helped so many people through their grieving process.
1: Yeah.
0: So uh, the first question is grieving. Um, It's different for everyone. I, I know that there's five stages of grief and what are those five stages for those that don't know?
1: Yeah, well, first first off, it's an old, old theory that um, has been revised and updated. And so I do t- still today, just last week, I talked to my students about the five-stage theory by Dr. Elizabeth Cuba Ross. Oh, by the way, hold on, let's see. Oh, here it is. Yeah, I was just showing this to my students. So she wrote this book back in 1969. Mm-hmm. And when I did the research uh, for my class, uh, creating the death course, I said to my, I I went into the um, university bookstore and I said to them, give me all your books on death. Now back then that was like, there was no Amazon. This was like the biggest bookstore, (laughs) you know, in the area. And they gave me six books and two of them were by her, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And so the five stages that she found by interviewing 200 um, people who were dying, most of them of cancer, is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. My students re- memorize it by remembering the acronym DABDA, D A B D A, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But what we, you know, realize is that grief is much more than that. And uh, one of the ways that I like to think about it is you can put it kind of into categories that part of our grief is physical. When we experience the death of a loved one, or in some cases, any significant loss, it affects our body, right? We have we have a headache, we have um, intestinal problems, we have, um, you know, we get sick easier, uh, we have fatigue. Um, so, Part of grief is something because we know that when something starts here, it can affect our body there. Uh, Another category, so one is physical, another one is emotional, right? All the emotions that go along with grief, you know, um, anger and guilt and uh, um, confusion and, you know, embarrassment, you know, how how did this person die and so on, and, you know, frustration and Um, you know, missing that person and all these emotions that go along with with grief. So we've got physical and emotional. Then we have the cognitive or the head part of it, which is, you know, confusion and um, and thinking about that person over, you know, so like obsessive thoughts, especially, you know, by the way they died. We keep thinking about it over, you know they died once that way but we go over and over and over you know hundreds thousands of times because mainly because our brain has to and so the other that other dimension is the cognitive or the mind dimension and then there's a spiritual dimension right you know a significant death occurs in your life what do you have a belief in god do you still have that belief um you know or what what is the meaning of life that it's a whole spiritual issue if you know this person can die What is you know what does life mean now that this person is, is gone? So there's that spiritual dimension. And then there's a social dimension that is how other p- people treat us when we are um, coping with grief. And one of the things that I found uh, i work I've worked a lot over the years with parents whose children have died, and siblings whose brothers sisters died, and spouses whose um, husband or wife had died. And one of the things that people often do after several months or years is they start looking at their watch and, you know they start looking at that you know it's been six months now isn't it about time you moved up right so this whole social dimension because many people don't get that grief is something with especially with a significant depth that is is a lifetime you know uh, issue it doesn't mean that you are hurting the same way um, that you were on day one but it it, it is something that, you know, is a complex array of, of factors. And the more people know about it, I think the better they can, you know, cope with it.
0: That makes complete sense. So that kind of leads into the second part of that. Um, do people go through all five stages? Yeah.
1: Yeah, some people don't. Some people. And that was one of the criticisms of her book, which and which is written, by the way, in 1969. So it was an old book. Um is that, you know, uh, back then they said denial and then anger. Well, guess what? Some people have experienced significant deaths and they don't get angry. And back then, especially when this book was popular in the 1970s and social workers were using this and they go and talk to a patient who's terminally ill and they say, so how have you been coping with that? Well, at first I denied and now I'm trying to bargain and, you know, um, get, get some experimental drug. And then the social worker goes, well, what about anger? Well, I didn't um I really am not angry, but oh no, no you you've skipped the pay you you've skipped this here. you've got you got to get to the anger stage and you know, guess what? as you just mentioned a minute ago, people are individual and so some people you know don't get angry and some people don't feel guilty and so on.
0: yeah, yeah. so some people you know, when it comes to grieving, they want to rush the process yeah. and start the healing part too soon. And too soon after, you know, uh, the death or the loss, but you have to let yourself grieve, right? You have to go through it and and nobody knows how long that really will be, correct?
1: Yes, you, you said it exactly right. That's very, that's a very wise statement because, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, and people often, as I mentioned with the social dimension are, you know, nudging people to move on with life. And, um, you know, when a man is widowed, what we find is that some of them are more likely to, you know, date after a few months. Now, they've been married to this woman for, you know, 29 years or 47 years. And now here they are in like 63, like dating, right? And some of them get married within the first year. Well, guess what? They've rushed it. There's, you know, one of the things that we should never do is judge people. But this is one of those times where, you know, if it's your dad, who's, you know, one's father who, um, your mom died and now, you know, he's dating his old high school sweetheart and now now they're going to get married after a year. It's like, dad, if it's really love, you know, why don't you wait? And so people often, you know, want to, want to rush things. And, um, this is one of the things she asked me, you know, what are, is something important that I want to say at the end, but I'm going to, I'm going to say now, you know, um, last week, made 32 years ago that my mother died and so when she was she died of cancer in her in her home in her own bed which was very fortunate for us but when I knew she was going to die I'd been teaching um, the death course for 14 years at that point I remember saying to myself I wonder how I'm going to you know deal with my own mother's grief because that was going to be the most significant loss I'd experienced at that point she was 67 and uh And and after she died, what I did, and I think this is something that I want to share with, you know, all of the listeners, is that I just let myself grieve however I was going to grieve. You know, I didn't try to rush it. If I felt angry, so I felt angry. I'm guilty. Okay, I feel guilty. I'm just going to feel whatever I'm going to feel rather than what's wrong with me. You know, years ago, I wrote an article called What If I Grieved Perfectly? because I was just telling my class this today, because I never had anyone come up to me and say, Dr. Bob, you know, I'm grieving just perfectly. I'm crying just the right amount of tears and I'm just angry enough, it's like, no. You grieve however you're gonna grieve and just let yourself feel it in whatever way. And some people cry a lot after someone dies. Some people don't cry at all. You just go with, you know, whatever, you know, your body and mind are feeling.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a a really good reminder because like you said, You know, with um, society and everything, you might feel the pressure of moving on and and healing too quickly, and your heart, soul, and mind and body is just not ready for it.
1: Exactly. Um, Let me give you a quick example of that. When my mother was alive, she had a friend named Rona who introduced my mother to country western music, which none of my family really liked. In fact, she didn't like it until she met this friend of hers. And so uh, one of her songs that she used to sing along with was an old song back in the 60s or 70s called Rhinestone Cowboy. Okay, So here I am six or seven years ago. My mother had been gone for, you know, more than 20 years. And I met a, on a cruise and we're sitting in the audience on this cruise ship and they introduce this guy up on stage and he has this microphone and he starts singing Rhinestone Cowboy. Here I am, like 27 years out from my mother's death, and I burst into tears.
0: Oh, my gosh. That
1: just tells us that grief goes on, you know, and it's called a grief attack. We're like out of nowhere. Like, where did that come from? And so that tells us that grief, you know, has its ups and downs and that guess what? It can, you know, it can come back out of the blue and, in ways that can surprise us.
0: Yeah. So the next question would be how do you talk to children about death or someone that's dying and things, you know, like what to say, what not to say, and what's the best way to show them that emotional support? Yeah,
1: yeah, very good. Um, You know, of course, part of it depends on um, how old the child is. The research uh, on children's cognitive development Indicates that not until about age seven, for some kids age six or some age eight, but right around there, is that the brain has developed to the point where they begin to, the brain begins to understand, comprehend the term forever. And if a kid hasn't reached that point, they don't understand that someone's dead forever. Now, here's, I was telling my class last week, here's a five year old whose grandfather died a month ago, and he says to his mother, Mom, can uh, grandpa come to my birthday party? And mom goes, honey, you know, grandpa died. No, he, he can't. But if I'm real, real good, can right? And so all you can do is just, you know, you can't force, you know, forever to be a comprehended concept in a child's mind. All you can do is just kind of go with them. There are a lot of um, books for children on death out there, some very sweet ones that... Um, you Know, kind of gently take a child through the death of a pet, the death of you know grandma, or whatever. And, um, early on, even you know, three, four years old, if you read to your child, find you know, a good book on um, on uh, a, a child's understanding of death and get them to begin to you know, understand it. For example, you know, there are fairy tales out there that are you know, uh, that really are end up misunderstanding death, you know, Snow White who you know, bites the apple, and then does she die, or does she go into a coma, or, you know, what happened, and then Prince Charming comes along, you know, months later, and he kisses her, and she, you know, comes back to, you know, and so you say to the five-year-old, can, can you know, people come back alive after they die? Yeah, I think so. Oh, no, honey, you know, they can't, right? And then, you know, as the child uh, ages, um, at various times, to point out various aspects of death, And to say, you know, they've seen something on television or online about death and say, you know, that's sad that 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 person died. And how do you think their mom is is dealing with it? You think she cries when someone dies? Right. You know, we talk to kids about a lot of different things, but this is a way we can kind of, you know, begin to guide them. And then when someone dies, it's it's very important to be honest. We often try to sugarcoat it. We don't want our kids to feel any more pain, uh, than, than necessary. And, and yet it's important that they learn the truth, even though it is painful. So years ago, a mom and her, uh, husband, I think it was her husband's mother. Uh, this is when I was in my doctoral program, came to the crisis center in Nashville and, um, the uh, husband of the mother uh, of the woman had um, died from suicide. He had put a gun to his head and it ended his life. And they were, and they told the five-year-old, they were ready to tell the five-year-old that his father had died in a car accident. And so they brought me in to help the mother and her mother-in-law to understand as harsh as it is, you need to tell the child the truth you need to say that your husband ended his life and that he used a gun and shot himself in the head. And while that sounds very harsh and very cruel, what I said to them is children can be cruel. So if you don't give your child the uh, facts, uh, you know, a week from now, or at some point, your child's going to be out on the playground and a kid's going to come up to your child and say do you know your dad killed himself no no he was in a do you know your dad shot himself right that's not where you want the child to learn the facts and so when someone's dying that child needs to be brought along with everyone else if it's the child's favorite aunt and she's dying of breast cancer that child needs to know how far along this is and what to expect what do we often do we try to protect children and then boom the death occurs and now that child's way back there in their grief or as everyone else has had a little anticipatory grief to be able to you know begin to understand that you know that aunt isn't going to be there forever so sitting down with a child reading the book you know and letting that child feel whatever they're going to feel sometimes you say to a child you know um you know uncle george um, died yesterday and the child goes "Oh, okay and then go out and they're riding their bike again it's like they they didn't care well you need to understand that that child is going to begin to process it later and maybe later on the next day or you know three days later you say you know what? i told you about uncle george you know what were you thinking at the time you know again not get in their face but just to sit down and gently you know let that child process it in whatever way that they want so and a lot more to it but it's being that good listener and um you know if a child cries fine if they don't that's fine too you know like adults we let them grieve how they're going to grieve
0: yeah i think something so good to remember is like you said in the process of knowing someone it, is going to pass away or has passed away many times we have that privilege to prepare for it and anticipate it and once you tell the child you know that this significant person is gone they don't have that and we're we're giving them a sort of respect you know to let them come along on that same journey so I I think that that's great that you shared that because I don't I, I personally know some families that have not followed that um, way of explaining to children and it's heartbreaking. So yeah, definitely good. good to know. Um, on the topic of parents and children, when a parent grieves the loss of their child, no matter what age, I'm sure that a thought in their mind must be, you know, how could my child go before me? Um, And that alone might make it harder to accept. So I believe you're part of a group, Compassionate Friends. Yes. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that and ways that a parent can cope with these thoughts or, or um, you know, if they wanted to reach out to Compassionate Friends for support?
1: Right. Interesting. I'm just talking about it in class today, a few hours ago. Uh, they can Google um, uh, or um, go online for the website, www.compassionatefriends.com. All one word org, and it's an organization that's totally run by parents whose children have died, or people whose siblings have died, and that's that's what and for grandparents as well. It's a nonprofit organization. Uh, it's they have seven hundred chapters across the United States, North America, Mexico, and they uh, they support people. So they have one, for example, that we that meets in the north uh north part of king county here at st francis hospital and so once a month or sometimes twice a month um parents meet sometimes there's five of them sometimes there's 25 who meet and talk about how they're coping with or not coping with the death of their child and it's all run by by people who've experienced that i i do i'm the professional advisor for that south king county group and so i've trained um people who are what's called Uh, facilitators to make sure that the group is moving along and, and uh, you know, discussing, you know, important issues, but it's a great organization. So if any of you out there know someone and trust me, it doesn't matter how long it's been. I had a student years ago whose son died in a tragic accident, you know, running front of a train and right in front of the fan was horrible. And my student had taken my class at the time. And it was about 10 years since her, um, son had died and I told her about compassionate friends and she said yeah you know I know about it but it's too long for me and I said listen I want you to trust me you walk into the meeting and you say it was 10 years since my son died and they won't blink they will say welcome good for you come and you know talk about your grief and and so one of the things I say to my students back last week, I said, how many of you have a mom or dad who's still alive? And they all raised their hand. And I said, your job is to outlive your parent. You don't want to make your parent a bereaved parent. Years ago, when I first started this, there was a 70-year-old man who was talking to me. He said, my son died last year, and he was 50. And no no child should die before their parent. That was his child, even though it was a 50-year-old man. Right. and so you know our job is as always to listen you know and not judge and let them feel what they're going to feel i have on youtube a number of uh youtubes but one that the folks might be interested in so you can just go to youtube type in my name bob bauer and then um put in good listener and so years ago i uh, had my son come in and videotape me giving a couple hours lecture on how to be a good listener to a friend has come to you with the problem. And, you know, it goes, especially with people in grief, they need at least one good listener who's going, you know, who's not going to judge them and, you know, let them talk and, and not try to talk, you know, don't feel guilty. You don't say that, or at least you have two other children don't go there. So all these suggestions for what you can do to be this good listener.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that's great. I really hope that anyone listening that is a parent grieving that, you know, the loss of their child can really, um, you know, find some support through compassionate friends. So if someone is dealing with some kind of um, regret, connected to someone's death like they um could have done something more to help them or they feel like they maybe contributed to that point um or they didn't get to say goodbye or tell them how much they meant etc how does someone get through that part of grieving if they're going through some kind of regret
1: yeah yeah regret guilt these huge issues um for parents for siblings you know and Here's the way that you can detect that someone has guilt or regret. When they say things like, I should have, why didn't I, if only, when you get those kinds of statements, that's the clue that indicates that they're feeling some regret, some guilt. I see uh, regret and guilt similar to each other, but guilt carries with it more of the emotionality of it every time you think about it the emotions of guilt just kind of well up in you and so you know some suggestions for dealing with that one is to sit down so let's say you're feeling guilty about um a loved one who died you didn't do enough you did too much you know whatever it is um and you sit down and write a letter Write a letter to the person who died, which for some people, like, that's strange. What do you mean write a letter, right? But you sit down and just see, you know, what comes out in this letter. And in the letter, you can say things like, I'm sorry, and then apologize for whatever that is. Now, some people say after you write a letter, you should burn it. I'm not in favor of that. I think you date it, you know, you put it aside somewhere, and then you read it. A week later six months later two years later see where you were in your in your guilt at that point point. and sometimes you know people need to write two or three letters and and also in the letter you can say here's how i'm grieving and here's how much i miss you and here's some memories that i have of you and here's an update on what's been going on in our in our life you know since you died right all these things you can say but but one of the things we know in psychology is that when you keep something inside here like guilt. All it does is just go round and round and round. And our job is to find a way to get it out, to talk it out, but also sometimes the more powerful way is to write it out, whether you're writing it in a long hand or whether on your computer or you're texting it, whatever you're doing or talking into your phone, just, you know, to get it out. So it's out there. doesn't mean that it's totally going to be cured, but it is an important, you know, path. In a pathway on the way. Another way to think about guilt, and I've years ago, I wrote a book on guilt. In fact, this past summer, I put it on audiobook. So it's on, uh, it's on Amazon. And, uh, if you want to get a taste of it, you can go on Amazon. It's called Understanding Guilt During Bereavement and click on, uh, the audiobook part. And there's like a five minute uh, example of, of what, um, this, you know, this is all about. And so, uh, in dealing with guilt, saying to yourself, what would my loved one want me to be doing right now? Would my loved one want me to, you know, beat myself up? Um, and you know, if my loved one loves me, you know, my loved one wouldn't want me to keep, you know, hurting myself. Third suggestion so one is you write a letter second is ask what would my loved one say and third suggestion and I have in, in the book and on the audio I have like 21 suggestions and where do I get these suggestions from people who give me feedback from bere- oh, <laughs> you know, really yeah I don't just sit in an armchair and go oh let me put my <laughs> ideas here I I send my drafts of my books out to people who are willing to read it and give me feedback on it. Yeah. Um uh, so uh so I I chat with your loved one. And uh so another one is you know to take your guilt and to channel it into something positive, you know, volunteer work, you know, helping other people or starting a scholarship or you know, doing something that um you're feeling like let me let me channel this and and that's why an organization like Compassionate Friends has been in existence so long because once they people have gone through a couple years of their own grief and got help from Compassionate Friends then they stay step up and help other people and so I think it's been around for like 45 years or so and they have a national conference every year in some cities so I've been invited I've been invited for the past Twenty years or so to give some workshops. So in uh, July, I'm going to um, Denver to give to give some workshops at at the Compassionate Friends conference, in which a thousand people are going to show up and and work on their own grief. It's it's very powerful stuff. Yeah. So there are things that you know people can do, and I'll, I'll give you the last one. There's a bunch of them, but a big one is in guilt is called self forgiveness. And so what you do is say, you say, what would it take for me to begin to forgive myself? Because we, as we all know, we're harder on ourselves than we are on anybody else, right? Somehow we think if I'm hard on myself, that's going to make me a better person. Well, the question is, can you start to ease up just a little bit and be more gentle with yourself? Because that's what your loved one in most cases would want you to do.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think those are really powerful points and very helpful. What are some thoughts or practices you can suggest someone to do um, to just get through their grieving process?
1: One is, um, and the, uh, tough to do, to keep a journal, keep a diary. Uh, some people are good at you know writing and keeping a journal, and it, it seems like such a downer to you know pull out. A piece of paper and write down it's been another terrible day and i miss my loved one so much and so on um or um if for people who aren't big writers they can get their phone and hit record and you know just do a voice recorder while that you know as i mentioned sounds tough to do what it does is kind of first you're getting it out second then you can go back at some point and listen or look at you know what you've written as we talked about with journaling and that's you know, that's one that can be helpful for some people that's not just not going to work second as we talked about before finding a support group or finding that one good listener who's not going to judge you who's not going to offer cliches uh, is not going to say it's you know it's God's will or or saying I know just how you feel, uh, but someone who someone who can put up with with your pain, and sometimes that takes a little um, training. Uh, I'm going to give a talk on uh, Saturday, and part of it a, a few minutes is going to be you know here's some things that you can do to train someone to be this good listener. And so one of them is to sit down with this person and say, I want you to listen to my grief, but I want you to understand that you can't fix it. So you don't have to offer me any suggestions. All I want you to do is just hear me. And, um, if I, and let me own up my own feelings. So as I mentioned, if I feel guilty, if I feel angry, if I feel confused, just let me. Okay. Another suggestion is to find out about grief. That is, you know, when you're grieving, especially with a significant death, you just feel like you're going crazy. And in a way, in a way, you are. When I, my doctoral dissertation was on widowhood and, uh, oh, let's see, how many years was it later? Um, eight or nine years later, my aunt uh, was widowed and she then came to live with my dad to kind of take care of him because my mom had died. As I mentioned, and um, my aunt would say to me, this "Is that Marilyn?" She would say to me, "I'm Bobby in the family. Bobby, I know you know about you know grief and loss, and you did your dissertation on widowhood. But what I want you to never forget is that when you are married, you are in this life right here, and then when your loved one dies, you are in a total different life. And so, part of coping with grief is to find out." about the craziness, you know, that's out there. Uh, five years ago, um, some widowed people asked me if I would help put together um, their ideas. And so we put together a book called Surviving Widowhood. And um, it then is basically their suggestions and their stories about the kinds of things that they went through. You know, your husband dies, you're 55 years old, and you're never gonna date again. And then you meet someone two years later. And now what do you do, especially if you have children, right? All these uh, things and they're, you know, wonderful books and videos and webinars, um, things online and YouTube. And again, as we all know, just because something's on there doesn't mean that, you know, it's some expert. You always need to look up, you know, where, what the source is and, you know, who is this person giving this great so-called advice? But the more you can find out about what you're going through and that, again, is the power of a support group. Years ago, most of the people who showed up at the Compassionate Friends meeting were moms, right? Women, you know, shared with each other the excruciating pain that they were going through day after day with the death of their son or daughter. And then as time went on, they, you know, would take their husbands there. And the husbands would be in the group and they would say, I'm here for my wife. Like, what began to happen is, here's this guy sitting there and another dad across the way start saying something that this guy goes, holy mackerel, that is exactly how I feel. I can't but right. And then during the break, these two guys, you know, talk start talking to each other and saying things like, Did your wife, yeah, my wife does this, right? That that's powerful stuff when one other person can get it. So whether it's a support group, or whether you're training someone to be a good listener and not judge you and and you know let you grieve how long you're going to grieve, you know, that's that's an important thing
0: kind of validates their feelings
1: yes validation is such an important you know issue issue with this right and so one of the things that i say to people especially during the first few you know weeks and months when they've experienced the death of a loved one i say to them i can't i can only promise you one thing that at some point in the future you're not going to feel this lousy you're convinced you are you're convinced that you're going to feel just as horrible today as you will a year from now or five years from now. And I'm here to tell you that you won't. I'm here to tell you that we're not talking about getting over your grief. We're not talking about moving on. We're not talking about, you know, you're all better. What I'm saying is that this excruciating pain that you've been going through at some point is not going to be as bad. And, you know, your job is to get up each day and, you know, to, to live another day, even though at times you don't want to. And I tell especially grieved parents, if you're feeling suicidal, if you just want to let yourself die, if you don't want to eat anymore, if you just want to do something that's going to end your life, you are normal. These are absolutely normal feelings. And, you know, why did they come up? Because if I die, they say to themselves, then two things will happen. The pain will stop. I'll be with my child. So suicidal thoughts become seductive. And, you know, when someone's all alone in their grief, they don't know this. They think they're the only one in the world who's ever thought that way. So, you know, finding those books and, you know, finding, um, you know, support that, as you said so well, um, that people are validated in their feelings and realize that the craziness they're going through, you know, is somewhat normal, even though they've never been in that world before.
0: Moving into the questions I got from social media when I uh, put out a post, if anyone had questions, I'm keeping these all anonymous just in respect to, you know, whoever sent them in. But one question came back as, um, if someone loses a pet that they considered a family member, is there anything they can do differently in coping uh, with that loss or is grieving a pet the same process?
1: I well, I think it's very similar, and and you're talking to someone who grew up without pets. Oh. Um, <laughs> kids! And my and sometimes my parents would be asked, "Oh, do you have any pets?" And they go, "No, we have children."
0: <laughs>
1: and so I grew up without pets, and I didn't realize the power that pets can, can give us and, until I met a man who took my death class. He was about my age, and he had he loved pets. He had three Great Danes, and you know people were uh that you know these animals were just part of he never married it uh until years later so these pets were part of who he was and then he called me up one day this is years before on the internet and was you know sobbing because one of his dogs had died and slowly it began to sink into me how important you know pets were um in uh in people's lives and so you know over the years we we've had pets and my daughter had a dog 15 years and that dog was a single woman you know and that dog loved her and she loved that dog so i i think that what happens is when a pet dies people like who i used to be who don't understand the importance of pet kind of try to minimize it and say it's only a dog it's only a cat and and they don't need they don't get it and maybe they never will and those aren't the kind of people who are who are going to support you there's a term in uh, death education called disenfranchised grief disenfranchised grief, which means that you don't have a right to grieve, so when a pet dies, you don't have a right to grieve because it's not your mother or your you know your best friend uh or the way someone dies if they suicide well you know that they chose it so you don't have a right right all these ways that we kind of distance ourselves from one another so. So, yeah, I think a lot of the grief books out there can uh, uh, it can really um be similar to uh in helping people to cope with the death of a pet.
0: One question came in. You spoke of suicide just now. um, this one is actually on the topic of suicide. Um, they ask any advice on how to cope with the loss and not feeling guilty for being unable to stop the suicide of a loved one,
1: yeah. Well, first there's a YouTube that I did years ago. I was in I was in Alaska and gave a talk uh in um in June on suicide. So you can again Google my name, Bob Bauer Suicide, and then find that video. Um and so that'll give you some of the suggestions that that I, I have. One is that, you know, certainly guilt, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is you know, certainly normal and we and people often say, how long, you know, am I going to say if only and why didn't I and I should have and my response to that is that you you have to do it over and over and over and over and over until your brain doesn't need to do it anymore, which may mean a million times over a period of years. And also understand what I'm going to say next, I know, I know, you know this, and it goes like this. When people are suicidal, we do everything we can to try to help them. And in some cases it works, but in some cases, despite all our best efforts, that person still dies from suicide. I've uh, trained more than 1,500 people in suicide intervention. I was uh, in
0: that, I'm one of those people. Oh, are you? Yeah, you yeah. Class? Yeah. I I was actually going to share this at the end, but um I took that class, I got the certification and I am so glad because I actually went on years later to help two people, two different situations. I talked them out of committing suicide and I drew in my memory. I was drawing from your course and, you know, I whatever I learned in psychology and all these things, it's because of you and because of that opportunity that I got to learn from you, I was able to save these two people who are, you know, in a way better position today.
1: Right, right. When you're dealing with someone who's suicidal, our job is to keep them safe for now. We'd like to get them, keep them safe for the rest of their lives and, you know, keep them alive. But all we can do when they're face to face with this at at the moment is keep them safe for now, get them the resources they need, realize that we can't solve all their problems, that uh, those problems in many cases were, you know, long before we realized they were even suicidal. And that our job is to, you know, find ways to get them that help so that, you know, they're on their road to feeling better. So, well, good for you, Rashi. Yeah, you're one of the 1,500 people (laughs) that has taken that. Yeah, good for you. So, um, and suicide, you know, has its own special grief issues. You know, we ask the question, why, why, why? And then, of course, back to guilt. What could I have done? And if I had said this or done this or whatever. And, you know, you just have to replay it over and over until you realize, you know, um, and what sometimes happens is, yeah, maybe that day, if you had said this or done this, they would have let, then lived another day, but maybe a week later, you don't know that they may have still gone on and taken their life. So we can replay it over and over. But, um, you know, that part of us is, is like, sort of, it is, you know, forever. But and in some cases, we have to realize that, we can ask the question why, but it may never be answered, um, especially if they didn't leave a note. And, you know, one third of all people who die from suicide have left a note, but, you know, there's no note that's ever been left that that can clearly and absolutely explain why a person would take their life. So people say all kinds of things in their notes, but, you know, um, still we're not going to know really deep down, you know, what drove this person to you know, take that next step. So, so, but I, I suggest, um, you know, go into the video and, um, you know, that'll give you some ideas on sort of the, um, the significant issues that go along with suicide. Um, But, but guilt is usually a big one and anger. You know, it's interesting with suicide. You're angry at the person who took this person's life, but you're also feeling sad for the person who died and as we know they are one in the same person so talking about mixed feelings right you know angry at the person why did you do this and on the other hand feeling so sad that they got to the point where they you know in, ended their life and so and there's you know support groups out there specifically for suicide as some of you know called SOS you know survivors of suicide these are loved ones who you know um of the person who died who then get together and talk about how they're specifically coping with suicide issues.
0: That's great to know. Um, And that's good to know that people can just plug in your name on YouTube and watch your videos about suicide also. The last question that we have from listeners is, um, it's kind of more, it seems more on like a spiritual side of things like after um a death or passing it says do you believe that souls are around after they or after they pass visiting their loved ones some people hear songs randomly uh some say that the lyrics to the song is exactly their situation sometimes i feel chills thinking about them and or see numbers that represent them Do you believe that this means their souls are with us? Woo.
1: I don't know if if the word believe is, but let me tell you, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of stories of people who said, You know, I was, I, uh, it was his birthday and I looked up and I, and there was a rainbow. And I thought, Is he giving me that rainbow for my birthday? Or the song comes on or, you know, something happens that, you know, says, is this a message? Now, for me personally, my dad died on um, a ja- on uh, January 12, 2003. So just, you know, a few months ago was 20 years ago that wow. he died. And the day that he died, it was a sudden death. He died on the way to the hospital. He was heart defibrillated. He was 80 at the time. Now, this is the guy who at 52 you know, my was told maybe he won't make it. And he outlived many of the die. He lived 28 years oh, later. Oh,
0: wow. Yes. Good for him. <laughs>
1: yeah. So here I am later in the afternoon. He had died in the morning. And, I, you know, I was, I was crying. it was upset. So I'm sitting in my bed. This is January, right, where the sun is very low in the sky. And we have this window over here. And I'm sitting in my bed. And it had been cloudy, overcast the whole day. And all of a sudden, as the sun is going down behind the clouds, the clouds part and the sun is shining right on my face. Right. And I'm crying, saying, Dad, is that you? And so that's, you know, one of my experiences. You know, who am I to say it's a coincidence or someone else to say that's a coincidence? It felt like my dad. And why not? And so, you know, for us, when we have those kinds of experiences, just go with them because I've heard, you know, a lot of stories that say no one, you know, people say no one can talk me out of the fact that that wasn't my son or my sister or my grandfather or whatever that was, you know, sending me a message. And and go with it. Why not?
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's so comforting to many now, in this point of your interview, it's just the segment, Rundown with Rashi. We just talk about something that's relevant to right now. This interview with you, it came and it happened at the perfect timing in my life, personally. Um, a couple months ago, I found out that a um, my old best friend, who I was best friends with for more than half my life, um, we were in contact and then we lost, so I, you know, life happens, we both got married and had children and, um, but I found out that he passed away and it hit me very, very hard, um, you know, so many hard times in my own personal life, I had my best friend as my support, you know, and so... This person was just very important and he was a family friend. Um, he also had two children, he had a wife. And it's just, um, you know, God bless his soul if he had lupus. Um, it, you know, as much as one would think, like, okay, he fought lupus his whole life and it was his time to go because his body gave up or whatever reasons that make sense scientifically or medically. It's still very hard to accept, you know, and I'm not even the closest person to him. So my heart goes out to his family, his wife, um, his brothers, his mother. I know his family is going to listen. And I, I really um, pray and hope that it does somewhere help them and, and anyone that's grieving any type of loss.
1: Yeah. One of the things I say to my students is, you know, at some point in the future, we're all going to be dead. You know, and then I say, just because I'm older, likely I'm going to go before you and, you know, I'm fine with that. But what do we leave uh, when we die? And so our job here is to tell stories of people after they die. And so I encourage, you know, the listeners and especially your, your friends, family to, you know, do whatever you can to put together those stories to maybe pull out your phone and take video of, you know, five or six people saying, I remember when, what was your friend's name?
0: Uh, Samin.
1: Samin. And so, you know, it, it, talk about Samin. And I remember the time Samin did this and he was, and it's nice to say things like, you know, this person had a good sense of humor and so on, but, but instead you come up with a funny story. And I tell my students, you know, how many of you have experienced the death of a of a friend and, Most of them raised their hand, and I said, I want you to think about contacting their mother or father. You know, I was thinking about your son today, and I just wanted to tell you a story about it. And when I ask parents, how many of you would like it, their hands don't go up like this. Their hands go up like this. It's like they crave those things. If you, any of you out there, have a picture of someone who's died, and their family members don't know it, forward that picture. The mistake that a lot of people make is, oh, I don't want to you know, bring his name up and remind them that one. like, are you kidding? They know every day that he died. They miss that person. You know, your job, if you can do any of it is to come up with those stories and, you know, forward a, a, uh, a video or a picture of the loved one to the family. They will, and I always say to my students, trust me, they will love you for that. So I think that's a
0: that's great. That That's honestly a great idea. I, I can totally imagine how that would, you know, kind of almost brighten their day up, just seeing something that they haven't seen of that person.
1: Yes. Yeah, I say to my students, you've said something very powerful. you said, I remember, and, and they will appreciate that.
0: Yeah. So what is something that you would like to share? Anything that is significant that's happening right now in your life? Um,
1: May 11, which is just a couple weeks ago, um, my 35 year old niece who had been um, pretty much bedridden for 10 years um, died. This is my sister's only daughter. And um, she had had all kinds of health issues and finally got to a point where she could hardly get out of bed and her father and and my brother-in-law and my sister you know took care of all these years and then boom suddenly we lost her and so her name's Marcy and we um she lived in Bur- in um Burlington and um so I'm you know in contact with my sister and her husband and they're just You know, and it's one of those things that, you know, our brain has to be careful because when you hear a story like that and you say, oh, well, she was bedridden and it must be a relief and so on, it's like, you know, it's our way of somehow trying to minimize that pain. And, you know, as I mentioned before, and when I say to my students, are you the kind of person who's going to be able to put up with the pain of another person and, you know, not run away and be that good listener? And so, that's what my sister and her husband know that I'm going to be for them. And at some point in the future, that they decide if they're going to have, you know, a memorial service and, you know, bring up those um, memories of, you know, Marcy when she was, you know, a teenager and in her 20s and, you know, before she got sick and, uh, you know, um, if they want to do a memorial service, that's gonna be up to them. So kind of the timestamp as you talked about, Rashi, is is um that's kind of where I am now with just a couple of weeks ago we lost this this dear sweet woman who um struggled a lot. And yes, she's free, but you know, every day we still miss her.
0: Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. My heart goes out to you and your family and I, you know, pray her soul is at peace. Well, closing out this episode, I just wanted to ask you if there is anything coming up that you're working on or any place you want listeners to buy your book, what would you share? Is it best to go to your website?
1: Yeah, the website www.bobbauer.com. Uh, i got kid who just graduated from you know college. I was his first client and he put together this very cool website, which I just love. Uh, And it has like 100, more than 100 articles. And uh, for the listeners, if they find any article that they want, they're welcome to download it for free um, and use it in whatever way that that they want. The recent thing that's come up for me, actually not recent, but I'm going to be working on it uh, in my my retirement, is a woman contacted me after she read my book on guilt during bereavement. And she said that her 19-year-old son died from a drug overdose and as pretty much everyone knows you know drug overdoses have now reached more than a hundred thousand people a year and many of these people all have parents um so there's you know a lot of grief going on out there in fact more people are now dying of drug overdoses than homicide and suicide combined
0: oh my goodness yes it's,
1: it's huge as you know we're And so the the mom wrote me and said, I read your book on guilt, but I wonder if you would be interested in writing a book. And so we're now going to co-author it on the guilt that parents feel, this is pretty specific, when their child dies of a drug overdose. Because like every type of grief, this one has all kinds of tough issues. You spend all this money, you put your kid into rehab you know, he walks out of there after four months, he looks great, He things are promising. And then three months later, he's using again. And then you go through it all over again. And then you get a call at uh, three in the morning from the police. And then you realize he stole your credit card. And it's just, you know, this incredible roller coaster ride that just yeah. is exhausting. And then one day, your child is dead. And you look back and you know, and all the things you should have done and if I had done and so on. So anyway, that's uh, a project. Uh, what is it? Two weeks from tomorrow, Rashi, will be my last class. My last oh, my
0: God, class. you're retiring.
1: Retiring.
0: Wow, yeah. congratulations.
1: <laughs> Thanks. The countdown is coming. And I'm going to have a big party. I'm going to um, – I've rented out the Highline uh, – uh, student union very so cool. downstairs. And so uh, we're going to have a bunch of Highline people for uh, the first four hours and then all my friends and relatives coming for the next few hours. Wow. And uh, this will be in July, mid-July. So uh, we're looking forward to that. But yep, it's all going to happen.
0: Oh two- my goodness. Are you excited?
1: I'm excited. I, I mainly because I have a lot of things that I, I still want to do. But
0: yeah,
1: I first started teaching in September of 1973. Wow. So I've been teaching for 50
0: years. Oh, my goodness. But, Dr. Bob, I have to say, I'm looking at you right now, and you look exactly the same. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm talking like you haven't aged a bit. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, I attribute part of it to the genetics, but the other part is that I'm still, I still Wait, run. wait.
0: Do I, you still stand on your head at the end? Well,
1: oh, here. Uh, oh,
0: my goodness. <laughs>
1: Yeah, let's see. Let me let me pull out one of my pictures here. I'm about
0: that's awesome.
1: Fifteen pictures on my uh,
0: yes.
1: Yeah, there's me. And if you go to the Highline uh, <laughs> website and you click on my name, you'll you're supposed to put a picture on there, and that and that's with me standing in my head. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I still do it, but this year my students didn't uh win the bet because I tell oh, them Oh yeah. You get all the question you have to get this question right. And if everyone gets it right, I'll stand on my head, but <laughs> but it didn't happen, so they didn't do it. But yeah, but I still I'm still a runner. I've been running for more than 50 years. And
0: uh,
1: I you know, I ran yesterday about three and a half, four miles. So um I think that's part of what's help helping me with my
0: It's very inspiring. Stuff. Yeah, very inspiring. And I do, I have to say, I do remember um, your wife uh, coming (laughs) into. (laughs) <laughs> she would come into the classroom as though she didn't know, like she was trying to search for a class or something. And you're like, oh, excuse me, ma'am. You know, I, if you didn't have a career in deaf education and as a professor, you had a bright career in acting because you guys, you acted like you're like, ma'am, I'm teaching a class like she's almost rude or something. And then she comes up close to you and you almost get into each other's faces and then you kiss. <laughs> I totally that's remember right. that.
1: Yeah, she's she worked on campus for many years, and uh, I, and I usually save it till the uh, one of the last days of the quarter, and then she kisses me and students, and then sometimes I'll, i I like to say, listen, don't tell my wife about
0: this. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. You did.
1: And then I go, oh, no, this is my Hilarious. wife, and that's another thing. that's keep keeping me young. I have a great wife. She, when people, you know, ask me, how can you do all these things you know, they realize it's, I have this partner who's, you know, supports me in so many ways. So I'm glad you brought her up. Her name is Chris. She's great.
0: You guys make an amazing team. It's like, you know, you're like the power couple and like the, the couple that everyone wants to be like.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thanks.
0: Well, I know that you're a busy man. I will let you go. I do want to just end this saying that you truly have impacted my life. If I, I honestly take pride in how much I know in psychology, and I owe it all to you, honestly, whether it's the suicide intervention course that I took or things that I learned. I tried to take every single course that you offered that I could take, <laughs> and some of them I had to fight for, but um, but yeah, I mean, you truly did impact my life. I Till today, I quote so many things that I've learned in your class when I'm helping someone or even speaking to my mom about something or an equation with someone or whatever it may be. So I want to thank you, and I just feel truly thankful that I got the opportunity to learn from you. And like I said in my email, I feel like our teacher-student relationship has come full circle because so many years later now i'm a mother and a wife and i have this whole other life and you're on my podcast i i truly am honored
1: that is cool well congratulations for you to have this cool podcast and to reach out to other people and you know take what you know and um and you know pass it on and improve people's lives so so good for you congratulations
0: Thank you, Dr. Bob. Um, is there any last thoughts before we get off um, yes. this call?
1: Say hello to your brothers for me.
0: <laughs> I will. I will. Time. And you have fun and you party hard at your party.
1: I will. You got it. You
0: stand on your head one last time for all the students.
1: Good idea. I will.
0: <laughs> okay, Dr. Bob, I will let you go. Thank you again so much.
1: Thank you. bye See you later. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that this interview with Dr. Bob was helpful to anyone that needs it. I want to end this episode thanking Dr. Bob for his time and his knowledge and for all the help that he shared on today's episode. Please do read the show notes for helpful links and points that Dr. Bob touched on in his interview today. Please visit Dr. Bob's website, www.bobbower.com. Com. To end this episode, I'm going to leave you all with a quote by Rumi, Goodbyes are only for those who love with their eyes, because for those who love with their heart and soul, there is no such thing as separation. Thank you all again for listening.